getting excited about the fact that we can come back together under one service. And, you know, I know that uh, we live in a time where a lot of churches have multiple services and multiple campuses. And, and at times there is purpose and need in that. But I also feel like uh, when we do that, we're ultimately multiple churches. We're multiple families or multiple uh, groups. And uh, God has designed us as a church family. The New Testament picture of the church uh, is always in unity, a church family or one body of Christ coming together and, uh, or one, one temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I am excited that we're going to be able to, uh, to come back together. Now, I am well aware that, you know, of course, the last 17 months have been strange uh, from the beginning of the pandemic when we went to online only and then ultimately uh, when we came back together we did it with two services so that we could spread out more and, and have some separation uh, and yet like many of you I have long been tired of the separation. I am looking forward to be in a, a body of Christ that can come back together. So as Nathan has already pointed out, uh, that will take place on September the 5th. In two weeks, we'll no longer have that first service. We'll all be in here uh, at, at this hour, 1045, for our regular worship service, and we'll be uh, reconstituting kind of and re relaunching our growth group hour at uh, 930 on that same Sunday. So I am excited about that. And I'll remind you, and on that first Sunday that we're back, we're going to begin the worship service with the Lord's Supper as a, as just a picture of us coming together as a family at the Lord's table to partake of His body and His blood together. But in addition to that, I just want to talk about the growth groups for a minute because I am excited about that. Uh, we are reconstituting those, and, and you can think of them as uh, five large departments, our children's department, our students, our youth department. Then we have uh, young adults, which will, some of those are young adult marrieds, uh, but without children. So young adults without children, adults with children, and then empty nesters. So those are the big departments. But within those departments, we'll have several classes. Uh, our young adults, our youth, and our adults with children are going to start out in the big group, and then we'll divide into smaller classes. And so I'm excited about that, and, uh, but I'm even more excited that we're coming to September the 5th because we're, we're also, as we reconstitute those growth groups, as we're changing uh, our, our teaching material in the growth groups. Uh, for years, we have used, well, for a long time, the church used kind of disjointed material. Different classes use different things. For the last three and a half years, we've been using the Gospel Project. But beginning September the 5th, we're going to be writing our own material that will go hand in hand with where the Lord is leading us as a church family in the preaching on Sunday morning also. So uh, if you come to growth group, it is going to, to coincide in, one, in some way with what's going on in the worship service. And uh, the first four weeks, we'll still be in the Gospel of John in September. Those lessons have already been prepared and handed out to the, the growth group leaders. But to give you an idea of how that's going to work, Starting uh, October, uh, the first Sunday in October, I'll be preaching on Malachi. So in your growth group, you're going to study a foundational lesson from Nehemiah 13, what was going on in Israel at the time of the prophet Malachi that he preached. And then Malachi, for the, the, first, for the next six weeks, I'm going to address Malachi's talking to his community about particular issues of their culture, which is all applicable to us, but the, uh, what we're going to do during that time is we've selected six 
topics that are most applicable to our culture today. And your growth group is going to go over those. In fact, uh, the first week we're going to be looking at who am I in, in, God's, in God's design? Who am I? And what's my identity? And so we can address some of the issues about identity that's going on in our world, gender identity and some of that crazy stuff that we're hearing out there. Second week, it'll be on marriage and family. How do we address our culture from a biblical perspective on marriage and family? Third week, we'll be looking at how we connect with one another through our speech, and we'll be touching on social media in that lesson. Uh, the fourth week is how do, we, how do we address mental health from a biblical perspective? You'd be shocked to understand how much the Old Testament in particular addresses this issue of mental health. Uh, the fifth week, we're going to be looking at addressing race issues from a biblical perspective. And then the last week of that unit, uh, as I'm closing out Malachi in the pulpit, uh, in our growth groups, we're going to be looking how do we interact with our culture biblically? How do we share the gospel biblically and still show love? And how do we address these issues uh, from, from a godly perspective? So, I, you, as you can tell, I am excited about that. I'm excited about how they go hand in hand. I'm excited about how it's going to help lay the groundwork for the messages. Uh, following up on that, we've got it planned out. We're going to do a traditional Christmas Advent in the pulpit. We're going to look at the themes of Advent. But our growth groups, we're going to be looking at uh, the birth announcements of Jesus and, and John the Baptist as they came to Zechariah and to Mary and to, to Joseph. And so, uh, the, those Christmas themes will go hand in hand. And I could go on because the Lord has allowed us an opportunity to, to begin to lay out more going into the spring. But I'm excited about it. I hope you hear that. And I hope you are too because it is a, it's a kind of a new day. And, and part of this has been allowed because the Lord has finally allowed me to get finished with that PhD that I was tied up in. And uh, yay, yeah. You know, we've been through that, but there's a relief there that opens the doors for us to do some things uh, here in the church. And, and so, as, as look, I know that COVID has not come to an end. When we started back in May, we, it looked then like we could come back to one service, but we, we waited to give us some extra time and to make sure things fleshed out. We thought that by September, it was going to be a no-brainer. Well, we see the rise in the Delta variant. We've seen some of the, the people in our own community that have been touched by it, thankfully, uh, not to a, a, a huge extent. But we as a church body also, many of our folks, in fact, I, I think most now have, either, have been vaccinated and many others have had COVID. And so there is at least some sense that, that even with what's going on in the world, that we're in a pretty good place. Now, I want you to you know, we'll continue to be cautious. We'll continue to practice uh, a lot of the things we've done in the past. If you, you know, have a fever, don't feel good, you're going to stay home, all those kind of things. But I'm excited that we can come back together as one body of Christ in worship and that we can begin this uh, relaunch of our, our uh, growth groups and, and move forward with that. So with that said, I, I wanted to get that out because I, I can't tell you how thrilled I am uh, to be able to, to begin to move forward there. And God's raised up new teachers during this time. God's provided for us financially. He's done all kinds of things. So there's, there's a lot of excitement, uh, but I'm ready to move forward, and I hope you are too. With that said, I want to get back to where we're supposed to be today in John chapter 20 as we finish out the gospel of John. So let me lead us in a, in a, in a word of prayer and we'll move forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And that's what we're talking about, whether it's a, a, our study in the growth group hour of contemporary issues and how to, how to approach those from your word, or, or we're preaching from Malachi or the gospel of John or, or the Christmas story. It's your word that we get excited about because your word is not only applicable 
when it was written or spoken 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, it speaks today. And so we come to this place to to look into your word and, and ask you to speak to us. Teach us, Lord, from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in a strange text today. John chapter 20 is an in-between text. I kind of titled it, God Paused. And really, that title could have covered last week as well. Last week, we looked at the burial of Jesus. Today, we're looking at just the first 10 verses of John chapter 20, the empty tomb. When those who come to to the, the garden on Saturday morning following the Sabbath find the tomb empty. Now, one of the questions that, that I sorted through as I walked through this was, uh, how important is it for us to, to pay attention to every little aspect, even when God seems to be silent? Have you ever walked through a time in your life when it, you just felt like God was quiet, God was silent? It didn't seem like he was speaking. Maybe you were going through a rough time. Maybe you were going through a confusing time. Maybe it There wasn't anything out there that was just out of the ordinary. It just seemed like God was quiet. Been a handful of those times in my life, and one of them that that is most memorable to me is when our daughter was a little over a year old, and and many of you know her story. By the time she was uh, three years old, she'd had over 20 surgeries, uh, had over 40 hospitalizations by the time she was three. She received her mother's kidney during that time. And, And we'd just gone through a lot. But I remember a time when the Lord had... He had he'd clearly led us to a particular place. Here I had uh, finished my bachelor's in, in New Testament and in practical theology. And I, Katie was a year old. I was working at a, uh, at a pizza place as a delivery manager and not really doing anything else. I had become friends with a youth minister in the little town that we were living in. But I wasn't teaching. I, we couldn't go to Sunday school or church oftentimes because he was in the hospital so much. When she wasn't in the hospital, we would go. But I just remember it just being a strange, difficult time. I, I remember being out in the garden picking peas and just saying, Lord, what am I doing? It just seems like you're not speaking. It seems like I'm not doing anything for you. you you've, you've called me to the ministry. You've, you've begun to equip me, and yet I'm not doing anything. And, and I just it just seemed like God was silent. But what I learned in that time was even in the times when God is silent, God is still at work and he's still alive. It may seem like he's not hearing our prayer, but he is. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So what I want us to do is is something a little bit unusual. I've never preached this section without getting all the way into the resurrection story. So I want us to ask our question, what, what is God teaching us just from this passage, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. The scripture says, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out headed for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed." 
For they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. I want to set the scene for you here because we have walked slowly through uh, the gospel of John and the crucifixion story of Christ. And, and you can imagine the disciples are in a heightened sense of awareness. And at this point, they were afraid. In fact, the synoptics tell us that they were hiding in the upper room where they had been, where they'd taken the Lord's Supper, they were, because they were afraid of the Jews. They were there in fear of the Jews. So they were scared. And, and they didn't really know what to expect. Now, Jesus had died on a Friday. So Friday night, all day Saturday. Of course, Saturday's the Sabbath, so God was silent. It was quiet. And early in the morning, Mary goes out to the tomb. Now, we'll notice here that, that John only mentions Mary, but when Mary comes back to the disciples, she says they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they, where they put him. Mary was probably with the other Mary in Siloam. The, one of the other gospels mentions that it was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus who went to the tomb early in the morning. One of them also mentions that Siloam had come and brought spices with her. So it seems as though, uh, though John just mentions Mary Magdalene because she's the spokesperson at this point. When she comes back, she tells him the Lord is, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And so uh, she had gone to the tomb, but she runs back, maybe by herself. You see all of this running going on here. But she eventually follows the disciples back to the tomb. And that's why I read the first phrase of verse 11, because after James and John went, looked at the tomb and left, Mary was still there. She stayed there in the garden. So keep that in, in mind as you look at the rest of the scene as we, we seek to interpret it. The other thing that I get a kick out of here is just the way John writes this. Now, we know that when John writes about uh, the other disciple, or he refers to the other disciple as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's how John is referring to himself. He does that consistently throughout the gospel of John. And so John's telling the story and twice, I don't know if this is a dig on Peter or what it is, but twice he has to mention that I outran him. I beat him there. It, it sounded like me and my brother a little bit trying to compete. You know, the first one there wins, you know, that kind of thing. As he tells him, uh, look in verse 6, he, he said, uh, Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb, and the clothes were lying there. Then verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in and saw and believed. So John's making it clear that he beat Peter to the tomb, even though Peter went in first. Uh, just a little tidbit there for you. But then Peter and John, after they view the tomb, they go back to where they were. Now, I want to draw out of this uh, three really key ideas or three questions and just work through those for a moment. Because this is, like I said, this is not an easy passage to preach. It's not an easy approach. But I think it's important for us to hear this. I think there's some things that we can learn from what took place here at the tomb, both from positive and negative things uh, from Mary and Peter and John here. The first, one, the first question I'd ask you is this. How are you going to respond when God is silent? Because sometimes... In our lives, God is just quiet. How are you going to respond at those moments? The first thing that I want you to notice here is that we should still seek him. We should still seek him. Even though God was, uh, Jesus had died, his last words, uh, John records, are, it is finished. He gave up his spirit. From that moment, there was silence. And yet, Mary 
is still looking. Now, we don't know exactly what she came to the tomb for. Maybe she was coming just to, to come with Siloam and, 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 and Mary, the mother of Jesus, just to weep at the tomb. You know, I've, I've revisited our daughter's grave. Katie, for those of you that are they're new with us, my daughter, uh, God blessed her with, with an incredible life. She passed away, though, at, at, uh, just before she turned 15, and uh, it impacted our life and many others greatly. But there's times when I've gone back out to where Katie's body is laid and just visited the tomb. There's, there's something, some meaning in that. I know she's not there, right? She's with the Lord. And yet, there's something about that. And so, maybe Mary and, 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 and Mary, the mother of Jesus and Salome, they just felt like they needed to go visit the tomb. Salome was bringing spices. I don't know what she thought she was going to do with them. The, the stone was rolled across the, the front of the tomb. But, you know, maybe they, they were just there to grieve. I don't know, but they were still coming. They were still seeking. And I think that that's one thing that's important for us. What do we do when it seems God is silent? We just keep seeking. We just keep looking. As long as we continue to seek the Lord, he will reveal himself to his children. Second, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more a little bit later, but we can trust his promises. Rely on his word that he's already given you. Now, I don't know that, that, that Mary here is doing that, but we're going to notice later that John does. We can trust God's promises even when he's quiet. One of the ways that, that, uh, that I see this flesh out in a lot of our lives is I'll have people come to me as a pastor and say, Pastor, I've been praying and praying, and, and it just I don't, I don't feel like God's hearing my prayer. It's like my prayers just bounce off the ceiling. And so one of the questions I'll ask them is, well, what does God's Word say? If you're a child of God, what does it say when you pray? Well, it, Scripture says that God hears our prayer. So you've got a, you've got a conflict here. Scripture says that God hears your prayer, but you don't feel today like he hears your prayer. So which do you believe is true? What Scripture says are your emotions, what you feel. At that point, you've got to put your faith in one side or the other. You're either going to choose to believe what you're feeling or you're going to choose to believe God's Word. And, and I, I think that God's Word is the only thing that is truly trustworthy there. You know, I, I can illustrate this simply. Uh, my, my eyes don't always see things perfectly, and sometimes I, I see things that are, uh, that are not there. I remember uh, driving out across uh, the deserts of, of Arizona or even Nevada, and you look across the way, and, and you'll see what looks like water out there, Right? And we have a term for this called a mirage. You're, it's not there. There's no water there, but, but your eyes see it. And then you get there and you're disappointed because it's not there. Or, or otherwise, as a, as a child, you could, I, I remember taking a straight uh, stick and s put it down in a bathtub or in a, in a swimming pool and it's crooked. It looks crooked. You pull it back out and wait a minute, it's straight. Now, did, did the stick become crooked when I stuck it in the water? No. My eyes tricked me. I was seeing something that was not true. So, our senses and certainly our emotions can sometimes lead us astray. When God is silent, don't be fooled by your emotions and your senses. Trust His Word because His Word and His promises are always trustworthy. When you're going through a tough, difficult time, and certainly uh, 
everyone involved in this story was going through a crazy time. They had just seen Jesus, whom they loved, brutally beaten and crucified and die and buried. And and a lot of their their understanding of, of the world had just come to an end, and it was quiet. God was silent for a day and a half or two days. What are they going to do? Let's suggest that the best thing that we can do when God is silent is trust his word. Hold on to his promises. Remember the last thing God told you, that you knew the Lord was leading you, that he told you to do, and do that. The second question is, how are we going to respond when life changes? Notice what happened when Mary came out and she saw the stone had been removed from the tomb. She freaks, basically. She comes out there and the stone has been rolled back and it's, oh my goodness. And John doesn't even tell us whether Mary peeks in the tomb or not. Uh, we, we, we're not sure. She either is assuming that his body's been removed or she peeks in and sees that his body's been removed. But in any case, she saw something that did not add up. Something in her life had just been shaken up. It had changed dramatically. And, and as we walk through stages of life, as we walk through times of life, we're going to go through times when our world is shaken, when changes take place. And sometimes we don't even see them coming. You know, one of those times for many of us that are in this room was the day that we said, I do. Because we had a storybook image of what marriage was going to be like. And then we said, I do, and we found reality. <laughs> and it might have been a wonderful reality, but it was not the same as what we saw in those fairy tales, was it? It's still life. Or, or maybe uh, one of the things that shook your world and upended your world more than anything else was the day your first child was born. There's a reason that we have divided our, our adult growth groups from Adults with children, married or not, and adults without children. Well, you'd say certainly once somebody gets married, their life changes. You know, one of the things that, that I've noticed in a, in a lot of our world, uh, let me just use an example of, of young adults growing up, going to college, getting their first job, and, and they, they're gamers. I, mean, a lot, I don't know how many of those we have around here, but, but quite, you know, there's quite a few gamers. They play in the, the, the PS2s and PS3s or 5s now, however far down the road we are on those things. You can tell I've had kids for a long time. I've outlived it, right? Uh, but, but once your kids are, well, when you first get married, I still see a lot of that. I still see a lot of that same uh, reaction, that, that, that same lifestyle. But once kids are born, life changes, doesn't it? Dramatically. And, and so maybe that's the change, or maybe your change was similar to Mary and Peter and John's. You lost a friend. You lost somebody who you loved. Regardless, how do you respond with drastic change in your life? Mary the first thing she did was make a false assumption. And I believe it's probably driven by fear. She responded so immediately, she comes and she looks in the tomb and immediately she runs back as fast as she can. She gets back to the upper room where she finds Peter and John and she says, they stole the body. They've taken his body away and we don't know where they've laid him. We know now that was not true. 
The body had not been stolen. Jesus was resurrected and he walked out. But her first assumption when she faced this, this time of change was a false assumption. And that's one of the, the arguments that I'll make for we cannot react out of fear. Because when we react out of fear, we're apt to make irrational decisions and make false assumptions. She reacted immediately out of fear without pausing, without stopping to remember Jesus' own words. And, and so if we, if we respond like that, we'll end up making mistakes. We'll end up making choices based on false assumptions. And I believe that that's what we see happening here with Mary. As fast as she could, she ran back and she proclaimed, they, uh, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. No, they hadn't. Jesus did just what he said days and weeks and months and years before. He rose up out of the grave because in him was life. So when things change, have to be careful not to immediately overreact. And then third, what about when circumstances are just confusing? Because a lot of times we're just struggling through this, this life and things just don't add up. They just don't make sense. I, I mean, I'll, I saw a, a funny thing yesterday. Uh, it was a, a based off of the Abbott and Costello thing, Who's On First?, and it had to do with masks and not wearing masks and vaccines and not wearing vaccines and whether you can go into business and not go into business and, and all of that. It, I'll just be honest. It's just gotten confusing. You just don't know what the truth is. We talked about this a few uh, weeks ago when Pilate just finally got, got, got frustrated because people, people were accusing Jesus of this and of this and of this. And then he's talking to Jesus. And, and Pilate finally just steps back and says, what's the truth? What is truth? I, I think that Oftentimes, when we're, when we're in a time of confusion, it's easy to get despondent and to lose hope. But I want you to look at what happened here, because Peter and John, they come running to the tomb. When they get to the tomb, John stops, Peter runs in. I think that's important. John gets to the, to the tomb, and he sees the open tomb, the stone rolled back, and he, he paused. Peter, we already know, is, is pretty uh, uh, petulant. That's not the right word. But Peter is, uh, uh, he goes straight in. He doesn't stop. He runs right by John and runs right in the grave. And he looks around and he sees the, the linen cloth laying over here. And, and he sees the scarf that had been wrapped around Jesus' head over, laying over here. And he examines the evidence, but he doesn't come away with any conclusion at least according to John in his gospel at this point. So at, at least Peter, when, he's, when things are confusing, when things are uncertain, when things don't seem right, he goes in and he starts looking around to see what's going on. And then all indications are that Peter goes back. Now, John paused. Now, this is key. John when he saw the stone was rolled away, instead of freaking out, instead of making a false assumption, John stopped. And the scripture says in verse 8, and this is John, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he also went in, he saw, and he believed. At that moment, 
John has seen enough, and something triggered the back of his mind, the promises of Jesus. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus was who he said he was. He believed that Jesus' promises had now come true. He believed that Jesus wasn't there because Jesus had risen. The Gospel of John is, is a huge thesis. We've talked about that. It's, a little, it's different than the three synoptic Gospels. And throughout the Gospel of John, there's this incredible imagery that ties it all together. One of the, the authors that I've studied as I was working through the Gospel of John was a man named Edward Clink. Uh, and uh, he, one of the things he focused on in the Gospel of John is the creation narrative of the Gospel of John. And, and I, we can't get into all of that, but I want you to see a couple things that tie it together. Uh, you see the, the, the image of the garden here as he sees this as part of a creation narrative. And that's important for a reason, but you can go all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 1. John ties his prologue to Genesis. Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning, God. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him was not one thing created that has been created. And so there's no question that John in his language is, is understanding what's taking place as a part of the creation story. And so in the Gospel of John, you see six primary signs that, that John points to throughout the Gospel of John. The first one is in John chapter 2 where Jesus turns water into wine. And without getting into all of this big picture, I want you to see this one because this will help you understand where I'm headed. John chapter 2 is the beginning of Jesus' ministry according to the Gospel of John. And, and Jesus is at the wedding feast. And at the wedding feast, his mom comes to him and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, well, you know, woman, what's this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And then Jesus goes ahead and he performs the sign of turning water into wine. And in that same narrative, Jesus then goes after the wedding and he goes to the temple where he cleanses the temple. And at the cleansing of the temple, he is asked by the leaders there, by what authority? What authority do you have? Show us a sign of your authority that, that you can do what you've just done, that you've come in and, and you've exercised your, your right. You've cleaned out the, the temple, the court of the Gentiles, a place where the Gentiles could come and worship. Jesus said in John chapter 2, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. John, I believe with all of my heart, remembered that promise when he saw the linen cloth and the head wrapping laying perfectly set aside in the tomb. And, and there's, there's more reason for this. Last week, I pointed out that Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that, that you'll see the Son of Man will be lifted up and he'll draw all men to him. That's, that's the sign that you're going to have, Nicodemus, when the Son of Man is lifted up. So Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who kind of was a, had come to Jesus at night, had never come out in the open and fully committed himself to Jesus, when he saw the Son of Man lifted up on the cross, he was all in. He came to be 
a part of Joseph, or with Joseph Arimathea to take the body of Jesus down, disqualifying himself from being able to, to uh, uh, worship and, and serve in the Passover feast that was coming. Claiming, uh, coming out as a follower of Christ. So you have the symmetry in John chapter 3 and John chapter 19. What did it take for Nicodemus to believe? For Jesus to fulfill his word that he gave him back in John chapter 3. Nicodemus heard Jesus say directly to him that the Son of Man will be lifted up on a tree. That'll be the sign for you. When Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up on a tree, he didn't have to see an empty tomb. He believed because Jesus had kept his word. When John sees the empty tomb, Scripture says here in John chapter 20, verse 8, he believed. Not everyone did at that point. Verse 9 says, for they did not yet understand the Scripture that you must rise from the dead. But John believed. I think that, that there's no way you can get away from that connection that, that Jesus at that point understood. That, I mean, John at that point understood that Jesus had been raised because he believed. Nicodemus believed when he saw the cross. John believed when he saw the empty tomb. You and I have the advantage of seeing the resurrection. And we'll get to that next week. But we have the advantage of seeing the resurrection Destroy this temple, <laughs> and I'll rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his body, John says in chapter 2, and that's exactly what Jesus did. So what can we learn? When our life is confusing, when it seems like God has gone silent, and changes are rapidly developing, and if that was true, 17 months ago that our lives got turned upside down and changed. And it was true last summer when, when confusion set in, when there were riots in the streets and, and cities were burning and, and police officers were under fire. And, and then it was the, the election season came and there was confusion and all kinds of things on the media and following the election season into January. If we're not in a time of turmoil and confusion and change, I don't know when that time is. And now we turn on the news, on the radio or on TV every moment and we see what's going on in Afghanistan with U.S. citizens and our partners there in Afghanistan, and we live in a time of change and turmoil and confusion, what are we to do? I suggest that some of the things we've learned from this text is we don't panic, but we pause. We turn to God's Word and remember His promises. We remember that He has power over life and death kings and kingdoms, ages and rulers. He is the Lord. He is God. He himself rose up out of the grave victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And because of that, we trust him. The last thing we need to do is go running around like crazy. I would submit to you that if Mary would have just stayed at the tomb, she would not have ended up making a false statement. Because Mary comes back with the disciples, and in John 20, 11, is standing there in the garden after John and Peter go back, and she's hanging around, and she, Scripture says that she sees a couple angels, and then she sees a guy that she thinks is the gardener, and he speaks to her, and she finds out that Jesus was there in the garden. 
I don't know if Jesus was there all along or not, but I'm confident that if Mary hadn't have gone running off, if she would have come to the tomb and she would have just continued to seek Jesus, she would have found him because he would have revealed himself to her. He showed back up after John and Peter went back home. Instead of running around like crazy, instead of getting dependent upon our emotions and our fears and being driven back and forth, to and fro by, by all of that, if we would just pause, remember God's promises in his word, and trust him, we will find him. And we'll be a whole lot better off. So I'll back up to that last question again. What's it going to take for you to trust the claims of Jesus? Was the cross enough? God put his love on display for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Was the empty tomb enough? What about the resurrection? That Jesus rose up victorious over life, death, hell, and the grave and offers that gift to every single one of us if we just trust him. Is that enough? You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.